I'm Nathan Maharaj, producer of the Kobo in Conversation podcast, and I'm here to share with you my interview from the Toronto International Festival of Authors with Jean Hanf Korolitz, author of the new novel, The Latecomer. The episode prior to this one was also taken from the festival, and I encourage you to check that out. But for now, please join me on stage at Toronto's Harbourfront Centre with novelist Jean Hanf Korolitz. She is, of course, the author of several novels, but most recently, The Latecomer. It is the story of the Oppenheimer family, who are materially very comfortable and fairly uncomfortable in just about every other way. In the description for this event, you've been told it's a book about many pertinent social themes, but what makes it a really brilliant book to me is that it's about recognizable, relatable, and even, if only occasionally likable, people. Jean Hanf Korolitz, welcome to TIFA. Thank you. Thank you to all, one, two, three, all of you who made it here. Very thrilled to see you. Would you do us the honor of reading a bit from The Latecomer? Sure. Um, I'm just going to read the prologue, which is so easy because I guess technically I don't have to set it up at all. Um, But I'm going to anyway. Um, I had to fight for this prologue. My editor kept trying to cut it, and uh, I I, I felt that it was important. And uh, I hope I was right, because I hate to say no to her. She's almost always right about everything, but here it is. The Oppenheimer triplets, who were thought of by not a single person who knew them as the Oppenheimer triplets, had been in full flight from one another as far back as their ancestral Petri dish. Not one of the three, Harrison, the smart one, Lewin, the weird one, or Sally, the girl, had a speck of genuine affection for either of the others, or had ever once thought of a sister or a brother with anything resembling a sibling bond, let alone as counterparts in a tender and eternal family relationship. And this despite the years of all-consuming effort from at least one of their parents, to say nothing of the staggering advantages they had enjoyed, beginning with the not inconsiderable price tag of their making, no, A lingering discontent overhung each of those three and had, since they were old enough, to glean their shared origin story, judge their parents, and basically make up their minds about the other two. For 18 years, they'd been together, from that petri dish to their crowded maternal womb to their shared home on the Brooklyn Esplanade and their shared summer cottage, not really a cottage, on the vineyard and their shared education, or indoctrination, in Harrison's view, at the lauded Walden School of Brooklyn Heights, where a frankly socialist ethos stood in bald contrast to soaring tuition, and at no point did they ever grow closer, not even slightly, not even out of pity for their mother who had wanted that so badly. And then they were 18, and not just leaving home, but desperate to begin three permanently separate adult lives, which is exactly what would have happened if the Oppenheimer family hadn't taken a turn for the strange and quite possibly unprecedented. But it did. We did. And that has made all the difference. Thank you so much for that. Um, for the members of our audience who haven't read The Latecomer yet, could you, could you set it up in a few broad strokes so we get a sense <laughs> of the cast of characters? 
a few broad strokes for a 450-page novel that took so long to write because it went wrong so many times before it went right. Um, it is an oversimplification, of course, to say that it is about a family. Saying it is about a family covers pretty much every novel that we can think of, from Pride and Prejudice to Anna Karenina, um, to wor The World According to Garp, which was a, was a novel that was very much in my mind as I wrote this book. Um, I was interested in a family that is created on a fault line. Um, I, I think that the question I've been asked more than anything else is why do these three young people hate one another from conception? And I, I do have an answer for that. And I, I, I get emails from readers saying, you know, I loved it, it was great, but why? And um, you know, I'm very torn because I feel if I haven't answered that question in 450 pages, it's kind of my bad. But I do, I do have an answer for that. And um, part of it is, is about this fault line, that the foundational act, uh, the, create, the foundational, you know, instigating event of this family is so horrible and so tragic that um, the person that it happens to, the father of these children, is so consumed with shame about it that he can't, can barely admit it to his wife who knows all about it and he can't tell his children. And the fact that they don't know that is a kind of destabilizing um, situation for them. But the other reason that they hate one another is that their family is not complete. There is somebody else out there that they also don't know about. And um, that is something that I will not tell you what it is because I do not want to spoil that for you. So two very good reasons why these children are so constitutionally incapable of looking on one another with a family feeling. But it's okay because it's all going to come right in the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, there, yeah. Uh, speaking of spoilers, yeah. so I read this book by miraculously uh, going in as cold as one can go in. Good. I didn't even glance at the synopsis. Interesting. So the first person narration, mm. the the uh, the first person plural, the mm -hmm. we, mm -hmm. the our father, mm -hmm. uh, not meaning to make it sound Catholic. They're a Jewish family. That's yes. an awful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we, there's a little tour of religions. Catholicism does not factor. Yeah. Um, the the we, the our father, the uh, I, I, what was interesting though was I found this tension between the narrator who who was who was thoughtful mm -hmm. and observant and seemed to know a lot and seemed to know a lot right and and this very uh, I mean, yes they were contemptible but also <laughs> in in some ways they were uh, no, I, I'm not sure contemptible but certainly they held one another in contempt but not with a lot of thought they seemed not a very there was a, a note I jotted early on was 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 that th this this seemed like we were getting the interior lives of a thoughtless bunch of people. Hmm. And, and it was a, f a really interesting tension to have that, that emotionally aware, that, that interested, uh, collective, first-person voice that I didn't, I didn't know who it belonged to. Right. I had no idea. Well, if it was hard for you as a reader, you can only imagine how hard it was for the young woman who was the narrator of this <laughs> book, you know, for the audiobook. And 
I had a, a fascinating conversation with her before she recorded it. And um, there's a moment in, uh, at the end of the, there are three parts to this novel. At the end of the second part, there's a kind of, there's kind of a big moment where everything gets turned on its head. And um, her challenge in that moment was, was the reader times a thousand, basically. <laughs> and uh, she did the most magnificent job. When I finally got the audio tapes, I went directly to that mm. moment just because I, I couldn't bear to wait to find out how she'd done, and it was just spectacular. So um, one of the reasons this novel took so long is that I was very stuck on this problem of, of not only whose story I was telling, but who was telling the story. And um, that was something that took a long time and stopping to write an entirely different book in the middle before I could work it out. The, um, that, that, uh, that tension and that, that transition that you spoke about in the, in the audiobook narration, I listened to most of this as an audiobook, and, and I, I was, I, the, spell, the spell bound me. Yeah. Um, I was completely there. I, I had a strong sense of there was a, uh, a cohesive, real consciousness mm. that was speaking about this. And for most of the book, I thought, what an interesting narrative device that, mm -hmm. that a family, that siblings would have this shared unconscious that would have this, this path into them. And then when it turned out not to be that, and, and of course I am so unclever, I didn't even pick up the clue of the brilliant cover design um, that's sort of signposts that there, there's more to it than the triplets. <laughs> Another thing left out of my notes is I'm native to podcasts and, uh, and, <laughs> and forgot there'd be a visual element uh, to this evening. Um, yeah, that was brilliant. That, that tension was, um, certainly was a problem to be solved mm -hmm. in, in the narration. One of so very many. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask, was that a, um, uh, as, as you were deciding the voice of the novel, was it always going to be was it always don't, going to be this character? Don't say the next word. Okay. I'm not, I'm okay. not, I'm not, <laughs> right, we're not, no, right. pause. All right, I, I will uh, explain how all of this happened. Uh, you know, in my life as a writer, I, it's always been the same. You get one idea at a time. You toil and toil over that project. You finish it. It's either successful or it's not. And then you, you lie prostrate on your bed for a year, and then you have another idea, and you do it again. Okay. <laughs> that was books number one through, you know, it depends on how you count, whether you count the ones that never got published or not. <laughs> I always do. But it happened over and over again that way. And then uh, it was uh, 2018, and I was writing this book, and I was still writing this book in 2019. And then... Um, uh, my editor left uh, the publisher where we had worked together for three books. And this is a common publishing experience. It even has a nickname. It's called being orphaned. Mm. Uh, it, for some reason, it had never happened to me. But, um, but I, I had a book about to come out, a novel called The Devil and Webster, um, which uh, nobody read as a result. <laughs> Um, which didn't make it all that different from any other book I'd ever published. So it, there is a virtue in consistency. Yes, it was. I was a very consistent <laughs> midlist author. Um, uh, but I had a first draft of this book, and I, uh, I, I contractually, I had to submit it to the publisher where my editor no longer was. So I submitted it to them, 
the latecomer, and they rejected it. And they rejected. And the, the reason, which came back to me via my agent, it was three words. It was not even close. And yeah, that was pretty hard to hear. Um, the other little piece of information was that I had this HBO adaptation that was about to come out. So you would think they would, you know, even if they didn't like the book. Yeah, this is a think, stock you know, on the way up. Okay, like, let's, yeah. you know, yeah. let's hold yeah. our nose and publish it because Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant, whatever. Yeah. Um, not even close. <laughs> so, um, so we're now in the fall of 2019. And uh, I submitted to my editor at her new... Uh, home, her new publication, her new publishing company. Uh, and she also rejected it, um, but she didn't say not even close. She said, it's going to be great. I will publish it, but you, you have to write it again. You know, there was no, I'm going to give you this contract and then we'll revise it together. No, it was, no, you're, you're pretty far off the The revisions mark will happen on your time. You, <laughs> you, like what you said, yeah. <laughs> so um, all through the fall of 2019, I, I revised. And I submitted it again in January of 2020, and the same thing happened. She rejected it again. She said, it's not there, it's not working, you're going to fix it, it's going to be great, but you're not there yet. But I was a fundamentally different person <laughs> between the fall of 2018 and January of 2019 because I was terrified. I'd been reading about what was happening in China. I was the only person I knew who thought we were about to have a global pandemic, I was, I kept telling people we're in the opening chapters of The Stand. Nobody believed me. Um, and I was sort of not in a good headspace. And I think in retrospect, that is why in my editor's office, talking through this second rejection, something in my brain just kind of went and I started to tell her about this other idea, um, which I barely had. I mean, I was kind of having it right there. And I said, okay, well, what if I wrote instead about um, this washed up writer who has this terrible student, but the student has a brilliant idea, and then the student dies, and the, and the, the teacher takes his story and writes the novel himself, and he becomes incredibly successful, but then somebody comes out of the woodwork and accuses him of stealing the story. And she's going, hmm, that's really interesting, that's really interesting. And then I told her what the story was, what this plot was. And, she, you know, this is a woman who's read everything, everything. She's read everything ever written, and she, her mouth just dropped open. And that's when I thought, okay, even if I never finish The Latecomer, if I never make it okay, there's, there's another, a window is opening mm -hmm. here. And then the next day, I was probably working on the latecomer still, and my agent called me and she said, what just happened in that meeting? And I said, what do you mean? We talked about, you know, the, why she's not publishing it yet and how I have to fix it. And she said, but you're getting a two-book contract. You're getting, a, you're getting a two book contract for the latecomer and for some other book I don't know anything about. <laughs> You've never told me that's about agent's this. That's agent's favorite way of finding out a new, about new books. It was, <laughs> it, was a, well, it was a life altering uh, day for me. And then a few weeks later when we had a global, global pandemic, um, my editor said to me, you know, why don't you put down the latecomer? Just put it down, you need mm -hmm. distance from it and write that other book that you were telling me about. And that's what I did. And, and in total contrast to 
this book, which you know had already been through many major drafts, I wrote the plot in four months, mm. and it barely changed. Mm. So it, it was a you know a mind-bending experience, which I hope will never happen again, <laughs> because of what would have to be happening in the world for it to mm. happen again. But the truly amazing thing is that when it was finished. And I picked up the manuscript again of the latecomer. I, I saw it. I saw the problem. And I saw the solution. And then I was able to write the book. I mean, it was like a huge, you know, palate cleanser. <laughs> like a cosmic palate cleanser that en enabled me to understand what I had done wrong. And, and that thing, and this goes back to the issue of the narrator, um, is that I had not really decided whose story I was telling. There were too many people whose stories I was telling. But that wasn't it. There was one person whose story I was telling, and there was one person who was telling the story. And uh, it was like, oh my god. I, I might have seen it, but I didn't. Uh -huh. And then I, I, I wrote, rewrote it a few more times, and then it was finished. And, and weirdly, it became The Latecomer. You know, the, 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 the title kind of became this meta description of how, how long it had taken to get here. Mm. When, when, it, when it takes that turn, I felt, um, I felt like the title was talking about me. I felt very stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like the least clever person to have you read the book. You only knew what I wanted you to know. Well, this is it. Is I thought, no, this, this feeling of, of free fall is, is this is the, what, I, first I went from embarrassment and realizing it's just me and Julia Whalen here in, in my headphones. She's amazing. She's amazing, by the way. She's amazing. And she's also a novelist. She's just published like her second novel. It's a little unfair, isn't mm -hmm. it? Like, and she's brilliant. Yeah. It was wonderful to actually meet her. We met in New York a couple of months ago. And I mean, I, I, when somebody's in your ear like that, mm. I mean, I've been walking around Toronto all day listening to Michael J. Fox read his book. I feel like Michael J. Fox is in my head right now, but it's a very intimate kind of thing. It is. There was a summer I, I, I had to remind myself constantly that I don't actually know Salman Rushdie, even though we've been going for runs every morning, and he's been telling me about his life uh, and the whole, the whole experience of the 80s and the Fatwa and everything. Speaking of audio, though, I wanted to ask you about character names, because one of the things that struck me early on was, was of course, two things. Uh, I met Salo Oppenheimer um, thinking, not knowing how his name was spelled, mm -hmm. only knowing this young man bumbling through uh, catastrophe, and, and his name making me think callow. And huh. at the and also you know his last name being Oppenheimer mm -hmm. this this you know because he, of Robert Oppenheimer he, he, this is a very clever person who has unleashed untold destru uh, destruction yeah that's <laughs> uh, I mean I I one of the first decisions I made was to have this fictional family be descendants of a real person mm. and that real person was a man named Joseph Oppenheimer who in the 18th century in Germany was a kind of a Jewish martyr he was a court Jew to um, um, the Duke of Stuttgart or the Duke of Württemberg uh, meaning that he was brought in to handle money um, for this Duke and then the Duke who liked his food and liked his wine dropped dead one day and almost instantly, Oppenheimer was uh, somehow accused of causing this, this death. 
Um, anyone who's seen like an 18th century etching of the Duke would be astonished that he lived as long as he did. <laughs> this, is, this is a guy who uh, did not have a healthy lifestyle. And uh, he did not go for runs with Salman Rushdie, I can promise you. Um, and so Oppenheimer was put on trial. He was charged with all sorts of things like sex with Christian women. He was offered uh, uh, to get off if he converted to Christianity, which he did not do. And he was executed and his corpse was displayed for six years. This is, you know, this is ancient history, except for the fact that Joseph Goebbels decided to, you know, dig Oppenheimer up and kind of make him a more modern villain uh, and made him the subject of a propaganda film called Yudzus. So Yudzus um, uh, had no living descendants, but through the miracle of make-believe, um, this family are his descendants and they've, they've made it to America, they've prospered, they've become extremely wealthy. These are the Oppenheimers for which the family is named. Um, the fact that Robert Oppenheimer uh, who went to my high school, by the way, um, shares the name, is, is just a little irrelevant frisson, but I had not considered that, that way of thinking about the destruction uh, until you mentioned it. Now I should just say it was always Let's in my mind, it. but no. Yeah, you, I mean, you've got poet on your CV. You can, you can say you intended all of it. It's Ex-poet. <laughs> ex-poet. I'm anyone? an ex-poet. You're an ex-poet. Okay, well... I, one, one poet in the family is enough. I'm married to a poet. That's right. Okay, that's... Yeah, yeah. that's how, like, how I gave up playing music when it turned out my brother would, would, would make a living at it. I was like, and I'm out. That's... <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> um, I believe you said, uh, and, and I can't cite the interview, but I think you, you, you've spoken about this book packing in a lot of, a lot of your obsessions. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, just fun stuff in here. Somebody who knows me told me that reading this book was like taking a, a tour of my brain. But, <laughs> but I'm not an autobiographical writer, so that's a weird thing for me to hear, but in this case it is true. Right, I mean, it, there's Mormon history. Yep, um, I'm into it. Right, okay. Uh, the evolution of right-wing politics. Into it. Antiques. Totally into it. <laughs> uh, a bit on hoarding, but I wanted to save that for, for a little later. But aren't we all into hoarding, really? We're all into hoarding. Yeah. Hoarding is fascinating. Yeah. I never got a sense of authorial indulgence. I didn't feel like you were just just having a uh, you know having a lark. It was I, I just, just assuming that if I'm interested, everybody else should be too. Hmm? Well, it, it, it turned out I, well. I, I may be the ideal reader, and and you you got very lucky here. And uh, the rest of these people think it's very strange, but but it worked for me. Um, it seemed it just seemed fun to write, and uh, and I wanted to I wanted to ask you in the course of the um, as you've described troubled gestation of this book. When, when was it clear to you that this would be a vessel to pack in so much fun stuff? There was more that had to, you know, hit the cutting room floor. So there were, there was... Scientology too? Did we, oh, did you oh, if only I could have gotten Scientology in too. But I think the Scientology on top of the Mormons would have just been too much. You know, I, I think that was another, not quite a decision, but, you know, when you have triplets, and you know they're going to go in different directions. It is kind of tempting to say, "Well, okay, you're going to you're going to write. I'm going to write you towards Mormon history, and I'm going to write you towards antiques, and I'm going to write you towards right-wing politics." Um, yeah, we shouldn't forget progressive education. That's another big one for me. So um, they all got wrapped up in that one. Um, I, 
I, I don't know, I've never done that before. I've never mm -hmm. thought, I'm just gonna throw in all the stuff I'm into. It, it, it was the first time that I indulged myself that way. So I'm, I guess I'm really lucky that you know, none of the critics have sort of um, taken me to task for, for you know, skipping around through all these weirdo subcultures, but subcultures are so cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it was, um, it's great. Maybe, maybe there's something to be said about being a late bloomer, uh, as we were speaking uh, backstage about, um, you know, coming into, coming into uh, your, your art as a novelist, um, you know, not, not shooting for the, the best 30 under 30 award or anything like that. That's a good right? thing too, right? <laughs> but I wasn't shooting for that. Right? And, mm -hmm. and the, you know, maybe by the time we hit midlife and, and cross that median, that the stuff we're obsessed with is probably more durable and, and, and probably will find more people who will, who will want to go on those journeys with us. Well, I don't mean to deny in any way my ambition as a young writer. I, I was as ambitious as any young um, you know, person trying to write their first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth novels. I wanted all the brass rings, um, but it was pretty clear to me that I wasn't going to get them. What I was really lucky about was that despite my horrendous sales record, um, I continued to have people who believed in me enough to keep publishing me, and I knew that was not a small thing. Um, everybody had to go in front of their editorial board and, you know, sort of sleight of handing away my terrible uh, record as a novelist and the terrible paltry number of books I'd sold in the past. Even the ones that were made into films did not necessarily translate uh, into, you know, huge best-selling uh, books. Um, but I had these two women, I had this agent and this editor who believed, not necessarily in the numbers, but that I would get there creatively mm. and that good things would happen when I did. I, I really didn't believe that myself. I was just grateful to still be published. And then, I mean, even when the plot was about to be published, I was sort of bracing myself for disappointment, and not just my own disappointment, but the disappointment of my publisher, that they had worked so hard and it wasn't gonna work out, and I would have to sort of comfort them. And, mm. and then almost from the minute um, it started going out in galleys, it was different than anything that had happened before. You, you, maybe that's just because of the internet and you can sort of see in real time that people were, reading it and liking it and talking it about it and sharing it and kind of all of that stuff. But it was amazing. It was really the most incredible feeling. And I'm just so grateful to um, those two women in particular, but, but even the readers who <laughs> didn't necessarily say, you know, she's 60 years old, this is her um, eight, eighth book seventh book and I've never heard of her, she can't be very good. <laughs> so. The, um, oh God, I had, a, I had it and then I lost it. Was it was a great question too, oh, the one God. you were about to ask. It was the, it best, was the best, question. best question. Now you're gonna have to ask a less good question. Yeah, no, I mean I wrote it down. Um, no, 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 I know what, I know what I'll, we'll, we'll get there, we'll okay. get there. Do you, you feel, do you feel you're still growing as a novelist? Do, are you, do, you, do you still have, you know, things you yeah. want to achieve, things you, things you think you could get better at, stuff that bugs you about your own writing, you wanna? 
I, I know what bugs other people about my writing because they tell me. I mean, I, <laughs> I get these emails like, you know, this is the fourth book of yours I've read and I can't stand the way you draw out these sentences and you use dashes and parentheses and like, please stop reading my work, you know. It's but thank not you for buying change. four books. They've yeah, well, I'm sure she got them from library, the library, but, yeah, sure. I, you know, <laughs> uh, it's not going to change at this point. I mean, I, I, I know I write these long sentences. They're all grammatically correct. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I'm not going to become Hemingway suddenly mm -hmm. at this point in my career. Um, this is it. This is how my brain works. This is how my my writing goes, and um, I would say I'm a little bit more confident than I was even a couple of books ago, and um, and that's great. Uh, and one one thing that you know young writers ask me is, you know, am I good enough? You know, is is this that I've shown you good enough? And I, I mean, frankly, that's that's the wrong question. You know. If, one thing that's so great about what novelists do is that we actually get better as mm. we get older. We're, you know, youth does not favor us. Mm. I don't know if it's because we don't know that much as young people. We know more later. We f understand more later. We feel more later. Um, or maybe some magic just kicks <laughs> in as we get older. But it's not just that they're not going to win some, you know, 20 under 20, 30 under 30 award. They're probably not very good yet. Mm. And I, I can't even think of a great novel written by somebody under 30. Well, we, we go back to Jane Austen. Yeah, she was probably under 30. <laughs> yeah, she was pretty good and she was she pretty was, young. Yeah, okay, she was Jane pretty Austen. Good she was pretty All good. Right. But most of us get better. You know, yeah. maybe we are lucky enough to get that first autobiographical novel published, but... The number of writers I can think of who started with a brilliant, promising young, you know, uh, first novel and then got better mm. is so rare. Mm. So there are so few of them. Mm -hmm. I think it's better to take your time and write a great first novel in your 30s or 40s or 50s. Later, or whatever, whatever hits yeah. you. Yeah. One of the is this the great question? The, the, no, this no, isn't. Okay. The, the, that was that that we're now we're I'm, I'm back on my track, okay. which is my which is I want to I want to follow your hobby horses down the trail a bit. Okay. One of those hobby horses, of course, being right wing politics. Yeah. Um, the uh, the character Harrison, mm -hmm. uh, being one of the triplets, um, makes me crazy. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> there was a moment when I was reading when I realized oh, we're going to catch up with them in adulthood, and I'm really not looking forward to coming back to Harrison. <laughs> like, if we could just not, that would be cool. Yeah. But I knew, of course, the book, we have to do it. They, yeah. they, it, would be, it would be an incomplete book without it. Um, the, the, uh, I think what makes me crazy about him is I want to argue with him. Like, I just, I just want to start screaming at him and, and knocking him down. But I realized that impulse of mine probably probably made him a lot of fun to write. Was, was he fun to write? It was a lot of fun to write. I mean, there, there's one scene where he's arguing with his sister and she says something like, Harrison, I don't even know what that means. And he says, I know you don't. I mean, how, you're never going to win an argument against a guy like that. But Harrison, you know, he, he, in the fullness of time, he will reach a point where you, you can stand to give him a a stiff little hug. Mm. I mean, he, he gets an arc of his own. He, 
he, he develops. Hmm. But it, he was a lot of fun, yeah. So Harrison ends up, Harrison is the smart one, and he rails against the progressive education that he and his siblings receive. He cannot bear it. He cannot stand it. He you know, considers himself superior, not only to his schoolmates, but to his teachers, and uh, is constantly fighting with the school administration. And when it is time for him to go to college, he ends up at a, um, a fictional, uh, two-year college, uh, which may owe something to uh, an existing American college called Deep Springs, uh, which is not a, you know, a right-wing place uh, like the place that Asher, uh, sorry, Asher's my son's name, that Harrison goes, but it, um, you know, it's all male, it's a kind of great book scenario, and it's full of kind of little assholes like himself who consider themselves superior to, you know, all those sheep that went to Harvard and Yale, where they will all transfer in due course. Meanwhile, he will tend the sheep at Rourke. No, that's right. And that, that this agrarian element uh, is, is a part of the school because they're all doing manly things in the wilderness yeah. together. They're, they're raising their own food and they're you know butchering the hogs and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's like proletariat cosplay or something. <laughs> that's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> um, what, I, I, but he ends up at this right-wing think tank in... in uh, in, in Virginia, where they are making America great again. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, they sure are. Um, yeah. A question that keeps coming up in the book, and I'm, I'm not going to attribute it to anybody because, because I think we've drawn our line in the sand in the yes, plot, um, is, is, is whether, whether any of us adequately think through having kids. <laughs> Like, is, is any one of us conceived as thoughtfully as a human being should be conceived? Um, and, and, you know, it, 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 is, it, is a, it is a shaking, upsetting factor for, for at least one character, the, mm. that casualness of, um, of being conceived. And, and I'm saying this as I join you uh, leaving my, uh, the, the birthday festivities of my own 13-year-old son who turned 13 today, um, and I'm thinking about you know, this is this trans. I became a parent, and I and I am racked by uh, believing that maybe maybe we didn't think think through having kids. I mean, I love I love my kids, but but by God, how did they let us have them? Mm. What what was driving this this? Because it comes it's more than once that we come up with with that with the anger about that that decision to have a kid. Well, in this case, the decision is coming from, from one parent, one prospective parent, not mm. the other, because the, the woman who marries Sallow Oppenheimer is motivated by uh, an awareness of what Sallow has done and um, the deep wound that this is. And, and because this, this occurs on page one, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm happy to tell you what it is. Um, Sallow Oppenheimer, um, as a 19-year-old college student um, causes the accidental deaths of two people. Uh, one is his girlfriend and the other is his uh, friend. And this is not his fault. It's just something that happens while he's driving a Jeep um, that flips over. And he is so, um, so altered by this event that he can can barely, you know, live his life. When he meets or re-meets the woman he's going to marry, she 
basically makes the decision that her purpose in life is to heal this wound of his. But of course, it can't be done. Um, and she goes to great lengths to do it as she uh, feels it is best to do. And that means giving him children, replacing the lives that he took. Um, and he does it for her because, you know, he's kind of in this kind of simulation of a life. He has no idea that there's really only one person who can help him um, and that she isn't it. <laughs> but he loves that she wants to do it and is trying to do it. So, you know, he has no particular desire to have children and she wants to have children for the wrong reasons. So it's not a great situation. And this is part of that fault line that this family is built upon. Um, it, it, one doesn't have much hope for them, but one would be wrong not to have hope for them, mm. she said. I heard an interview as we speak of ambition. I heard an interview with novelist A.M. Holmes mm -hmm. uh, just a few days ago. And she said she was done calling things the great American novel. <laughs> um, and uh, what she suggested instead is the term, the pretty good big book. Yeah, I like that. It's pretty good, well, right? I love her. She's so smart. Well, so the thing I love about the, the pretty good big book is it, it takes a lot of pressure off of, off of all of us. Mm -hmm. It takes pressure off us, the readers, so we don't have to select the great American novel to read or make sure we've read the great American novel. All we got to do is read some pretty good big books. Mm -hmm. And as a writer, all you got to do is write a pretty good big oh, book. Oh, is that all? That's all. That's all. <laughs> we've, we've gone, we, well, we've removed the definite article. It's no longer the. Now, we're, now we've got the indefinite article, which is, you know, a, a difference, maybe a difference only in degree, if not kind. But um, I think there's a long, fulfilling career in writing pretty good big books. Um, but I wanted to ask you as, you, as you reflect on that sort of arc of ambition that was maybe hard to fulfill in, 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 in the, the days of, of, of youth, but maybe not having anything to say or not being wise enough, do you, do you still or have you, ever, have you ever set out to write the great American novel? No, I would not have dreamed of that. Frankly, I think it's a boy thing. I don't, I don't think, I have never met a woman, I know many women who are novelists, not one of them, uh, I believe, has ever set out to write the great American novel. This is a boy thing. Um, you know, Mailer, Roth, Franzen, you know, that's, that's in the boy writing room. We're like, we love novels and mm. we love fiction and, you know, the, the, despite the fact that the great American novelists have all been boys, um, the novel, since its inception in the 18th century, has always been a female art form. I mean, we have been the readers of the novel, and we are still the readers of the novel. Absolutely. And yet, we're not, we're not climbing that mountain, for better or for worse. But I was smiling when you said this, because um, uh, Avi Steinberg, who's a, a writer who I mentioned in the acknowledgments, another Jew obsessed with Mormons, uh, <laughs> wrote a fascinating book called um, The Lost Book of Mormon, in which he claims, he makes the argument quite effectively, that the Book of Mormon is the great American novel. It's uh, written by a boy, yeah. um, but it's, you know, it, it tells the story of America, it makes up languages, there's a cosmology, there's a mythology, there's a history, it's the whole deal. 
The Book of Mormon is the great American novel. I want to ask a really like technical question because there was a moment in the book that that uh, like my breath caught. I was like, "How the hell do you write a book with something like that in it?" Ooh, what was that? It was. So they're at the Oppenheimer's summer, summer home. Mm -hmm. Sallow's upstairs. Right. He's alerted to the approach of the time to gather on the beach for the annual birthday festivities mm -hmm. with, with all the seafood. The worst birthday celebration ever. Yeah, it's really bad. It's, it's so fantastic. Bad. What a scene. He's alerted to this, this uh, uh, the approaching time by the increasing frequency of the suck and slap of the Sub-Zero fridge uh, well, Clearly, downstairs. you've never owned a Sub-Zero fridge. Evidently. Because Evidently. that is what they sound like. Well, here it's so it's not yes, but but to to be clear, it's not just the onomatopoeia of it. Mm -hmm. It was the observation that the increasing frequency of it would be a signifier of of some event approaching. I thought I was I was I was astonished and thought, my God, does she just have a book full of like <laughs> randomly observed things that will make readers like me go? Damn! Like, how how does a scene like that? Does that you're just writing it and you're like, and and you're just in it, and you know that Sallow would pick up that cue, or or are there like, do you capture things? Do you still is there though an ex poet? Mm -hmm. Are you still magpieing away pieces of, of of things like that? Oh, definitely. I mean, it, this is one reason I'm I've never regretted the fact that I started as a poet. I mean. It, it, Starting as a poet teaches you a respect for language that maybe you get if you start as a limerick writer. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I have it. And I also write with my ear. Um, I cannot leave an ugly sentence on the page, which is not to say that there are no ugly sentences. There are plenty I haven't recognized as ugly sentences. <laughs> but if, I, if it sounds ugly to me, even if it conveys the facts and the the words are in the right order and all of that stuff, and it makes sense. If it's ugly, I can't leave it there. So, um, but those scenes, this is the culmination of part two where the entire family has gathered and really bad things are about to happen. Um, there were so many moving pieces in those scenes that um, everybody's movement is connected to everybody else's movement. And there was probably some late in the day little idea about how does he know when it's time to come downstairs that that I went back and wove in. Mm. And this is the advantage of writing a novel. You don't, you know, you can have an idea later and come back and fillet it in. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm sure it was a moment like that. Mm. Um, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with one more interview from the TIFA stage. This episode contains audio from the Toronto International Festival of Authors and was produced by me, Nathan Maharaj. Thank you for listening. <laughs>